Welcome back to season four of the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. I'm Ashley Miltite. On this season, we're taking a look at the future. We're looking at how the things you do every day will be different 10, 20, 50 years from now. To answer these questions, we're going to the places where the future is already happening. Because the future is already happening somewhere. It's just a matter of knowing where to find it. Today's episode, The Future of Flavor. So we're uh, downtown Main Street, Trumansburg, uh, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, and uh, gonna take some of our, our squash into uh, Hazelnut Kitchen and see how many crates they have room for in the back. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, unload and share with them what we brought. It's a chilly March day in upstate New York. The grass is still yellow and dry, but everyone in the Finger Lakes region knows that spring is coming fast. That's why Michael Mazurek, a plant breeder, is cleaning out his produce and seed processing room. He decides to stop by Hazelnut Kitchen, a local farm-to-table restaurant, to unload some of last season's haul. Hello. Hello. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> so many different kinds. Oh my goodness. So it's a sampler. Get some beans for me? You, you made a request. Yeah. A lot of people so in the region are big fans of Michael's produce. He's something of a local celebrity. So when he stops by Hazelnut Kitchen with crates of squash and beans, the owners of the restaurant have a little surprise for him. The chef goes into the kitchen and emerges with a plate. On it are two little wheels about the size of hockey pucks. They're dense, spongy, and bright red. So this is what it looks like sliced. I can go get the whole one for it. So we put a bunch of cooked beets and pickled habanadas in there. Oh, nice. They kind of give it that speckly spice. But it, it's kind of cool. Uh, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a similar texture to a sausage. It turned out pretty nice. It turned out really nice. Yeah, it's... Wow. It's a party. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so surprising how fast the flavor hits and there's the beet and the habanada and and then it's just like so sweet and you, you still have this like fruity sweet the habanada yeah. it's a pepper with all the floral notes of a habanero minus the spice michael actually made this pepper it's his breed his sweet tangy habanada pepper is what made that beet sausage taste more like a real sausage and it's just one of many vegetables Michael has invented in order to change the flavor of our food. Michael and his partners at their seed company, Row 7 Seed, are on a mission. They want to upend the way we think about, care about, and most importantly, taste our food. Their goal is to breed vegetables not for quantity or aesthetics, but for flavor. It's something totally new, like a beet sausage, like what? And it's cold, so what is this going to be like? And After Michael finishes dropping off his produce at Hazelnut Kitchen, he gets back in his car and hits the open road to his next delivery. He thinks about what that beet sausage would have tasted like if the chefs had used Row 7's Badger Flame Beet. It's striped with vibrant yellows and oranges and bred to taste sweeter and less earthy than a plain old beet. If they'd used the Badger Beet, then... It would have changed a lot of other things too. So as you get different flavors than the spices they mixed in, I'm sure they also would have changed. And so 
that's the exciting thing is it's not just a substitution it would have led to a whole new recipe for them uh and so yeah a recipe in the seed and and changing a recipe in the kitchen together is so it gets us really excited flavor it's a pretty hard thing to describe sure it's the way something tastes but with new technology our changing environment globalization and a better understanding of how to invent new types of food the future of flavor is wide open for every breeder like michael who's thinking about flavor as something that starts in a seed there are those who are working in labs designing flavors that are meant to be familiar yet new artificial yet natural and above all else appealing to everyone these behind the scenes players are trying to change our tasting experience and where the flavor industry goes matters different tastes and categories drive the entire at home food industry the organic natural category alone is an 88 billion dollar industry and it's growing as this sector continues to expand lab made flavors will have to keep up and consumers will have to make new choices about which flavors to buy shifting the food system along with them today on the morgan stanley ideas podcast we're exploring these two opposite ends of the flavor spectrum because the future of flavor is happening in two very different places the farm and the lab first up the farm So we are um in kind of in a, a seed processing room. Um one side, um uh, we have uh, cold storage for seeds and uh the other we're sorting out uh samples to send to growers. Uh, Michael their, is one of the co-founders of Row 7 Seed, a seed company that prioritizes flavor above all else. Row 7 is the first seed company founded by a breeder, that's Michael. a seedsman Matthew Goldfarb and a chef Dan Barber of the famous Blue Hill restaurants though they all play very different roles in our food system they all know that most of our produce even the stuff grown under the best conditions is all about uniformity and conformity a tomato for instance should look like all other tomatoes and it should look like something out of a textbook or gardening magazine round plump and red This type of tomato might look flavorful, but there's a good chance that it tastes bland and boring. Michael and his team at Row 7 realized that many farmers and distributors' last priority is the thing that separates an okay tomato from a great tomato. Flavor. Flavor has been a uh, really neglected uh, part of our food system for a while. Um and we were so invested in making everything practical that as we move toward that we only were valuing is something how's its shelf life how's its shipability so we've been getting back into flavor and what that means is as you start to work with flavor you're starting to work with nutrition more because a lot of flavor compounds aromas we sense are derived from essential nutrients in the plant to get people interested in trying and buying their products just creating these new flavors isn't enough Michael and his team work hard to make their produce stand out from the crowd. By focusing on flavor, they're able to breed unique vegetables that prior to row 7 weren't available in your average supermarket. They're teeming with vibrant colors, specific backstories, 
and memorable names like the Trombuccinos in the butternut squash family. It's pale orange with a big round base and a long swirling body that looks like the neck of a swan. Dan was using uh, the Trombuccino squash as a, a squash stick, so it was some some competition with with the meat on the plate. Then there's Robin's coconut squash. It's fusion food at the seed level, so uh, something of the Japanese kabocha squash persuasion with uh, one of our our best sweet little butternuts. Uh, Put that together and uh, you get more than the best of both. And Michael's bestseller, the impetus for row seven seeds, the honey nut squash. They are the the tiniest of little butternut squash with almost all the water taken out. And so this makes them uh, smaller, sweeter, more concentrated flavor just because all the... How many are you just holding in your hand? Oh, a handful was two. It all started when Chef Dan Barber gave Michael a challenge. Could Michael take a traditional butternut squash and actually change its flavor? Dan wanted to be able to serve something sweeter and more caramel-like at his vegetable-centric Michelin star restaurants. So Michael decided to create a new squash breed by sucking all of the water out of a regular butternut squash, shrinking it down and enhancing the flavor. What started as a niche crop became something you could find at a local farmer's market and eventually something you could buy at national supermarket chains across the country. It might seem like these fresh, natural flavors are a mark of luxury, but actually they're starting to become a given. So if you're thinking about flavors, um, what will the market gravitate toward? Um, Do they want artificial? Do they want natural? Without a doubt, it's natural. And I think that's been shown through the growth rate in the overall natural organic category. This is Vincent Sinisi, a food retail analyst at Morgan Stanley. Up until a few years ago, natural organic foods like Michael's squash didn't pose any serious threat to the prepackaged, more artificial category. But now, natural organics make up over 10% of the $800 billion food at home industry. They're becoming a staple, and the category is continuing to grow. You can say that natural organic is growing high single digits. Your you know, traditional center of the store items are probably more around that 2% or so range. Whether you're shopping in a national chain supermarket or in a small specialty shop, you'll notice that most grocery stores are laid out the same way. There's the perimeter of the store. That's usually reserved for produce, dairy and frozen items. While the centre of the store, Vincent mentioned, is filled with non-perishable items. As shoppers gravitate towards these natural, organic products, they're going to want variety in flavours, just like you see in centre-of-the-store products. Michael is solving that problem not just by creating new flavors, but by eliminating one of the biggest barriers to spreading his flavors, shipping. By shipping seeds rather than produce, you don't have to rely on trucks crossing the country in order to get someone in California to try your badger flame beet. You can ensure that products won't get damaged en route. You can provide fresher, better tasting vegetables when crops are harvested at a nearby farm. And you can cater to another category that Vincent notes more and more consumers and retailers are looking for. Local, from a procurement perspective, can certainly be less costly to get from, let's say, farm to shelf. Uh, What it also does, though, in addition to just a, let's say, cost of goods for a retailer, you have from the consumer angle. 
if you have the opportunity while you're conveniently in the same place to buy something that has come from a local farm, you probably feel, as long as the value's in check, you probably feel better about doing that because you would rather have something that hasn't a traveled as much, gone through so much, let's say, preparation to get it onto the shelves, and then B, why not support a local grower? Affordable access to flavors that comes from local farms. Right now, that feels like a utopian future. And even if we did have this type of access, why would you want to limit yourself to local flavors when you could try new flavors from around the world? Michael understands how to manipulate seeds to yield a certain flavor, but a squash no matter how you crossbreed it, will always be a squash. I think I see myself in in competition with the synthetic flavors. So for me, I realize as I'm working with vegetables, I'm competing with all the sensory developed processed food, things where you can spike in, all the different things you want. So Um, I'm trying to take whole foods and vegetables and compete uh, on that landscape. So for me, it's how can you work within nature to be able to get that sensory experience that is not in the processed food space. In the competition between farm-made versus lab-made flavors, who wins? When you're faced with a choice, which do you pick? For example, you could eat one of Row7's buttery-rich upstate abundance potatoes or... Beer chips. Or if you're looking for something a little healthier, why not try... Burmese tea salad. Or if you're craving a meaty umami flavor, go to most any supermarket and you'll find... Sheets of seaweed that all the kids are snacking on. Meet Sarah Massoni. She's the Product and Process Development Director at Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. After years of training her taste buds, in 1985, Sarah became the number one butter and ice cream judge in the nation. That title launched her career, and since then, she's become known as the woman with the million-dollar palette. Sarah is a flavor designer and consultant. Her sense of taste has been instrumental in getting some complex flavors from the lab onto your supermarket shelves. She knows when the slightest ingredient is off and can improve the chemistry behind popular recipes with just one taste. While Sarah's work is done in a lab, some of her products rely on the same types of flavors that Michael breeds. But her process is part of the industrial flavor system that so many people participate in without even thinking about it. Ask anyone who lives in Portland what their favorite ice cream shop is, and they'll most likely all come back with one answer, Salt and Straw. Salt and Straw started as a small business in downtown Portland and has since expanded into a West Coast tradition. The stores feature local, seasonal flavors like strawberry honey balsamic with black pepper, rhubarb crumble with toasted anise, or Sarah's own creation, Oregon pear and blue cheese. My husband, he was working at a dairy and there was a five pound bag of blue cheese up for grabs and he brought it home and I threw it in the freezer and I would snack on it while I was making dinner. And I noticed that even though it was frozen, it was still sort of like eating a little uh, blue cheese popsicle. And so when I started working with Salt and Straw on their novel flavors for when they were getting going, I threw 
passed them the idea of doing pear and blue cheese, and they said, okay, show us what that would be like. So Sarah spent three days working out of her home kitchen, making 18 new flavors for salt and straw. And once they landed on the Oregon pear and blue cheese, they had to figure out a way to share it with others. Because making a small batch of experimental ice cream out of your kitchen is one thing. But to get it to the masses? Sarah had to stop thinking about how to translate that recipe into chemistry. And I actually used canned pears in heavy syrup because the fruit that you put into ice cream needs to be pretty well calibrated around between 19 and 22 percent sugar so that it doesn't freeze icy. And that's where pears in a heavy syrup are sitting. And once Sarah developed a formula to scale up that ice cream, it was out of her hands. After she designs any flavor, she sends her recipe to a co-packing company that will actually make and label the mass-produced ice cream. And finally, the industrial process is complete once the ice cream goes... Into the hardening room where the small particulate ice crystals are um, hardened. And then that ice cream will stay in the very cold temperature until it's ready to be served. Then it'll have to be tempered up to a little bit warmer temperature so that it's scoopable. When Sarah designs a flavor, she thinks about four key things. One, the pH level. If that's off, bacteria can start to grow, and no one wants moldy ice cream. Two, the Brix level. That's the term for how much sugar goes into each flavor. Three, whether certain flavors should be heated, frozen, or shelf-stabilized. And four, mass appeal. It's not enough for Sarah to create flavors that are safe for everyone. They've got to be something that everyone wants to eat. And to do that, Sarah knows the best flavors need to hit a trifecta of basic elements. If you go to the grocery store and you look at one of your favorite foods, just look at the Nutrition Facts panel, and you see that it has, for instance, 420 milligrams of sodium, 9 grams of fat, and 5 grams of protein. Maybe this was in the potato chip aisle, and then you go, for instance, to the spaghetti sauce, and you look at the nutrition facts, you might be surprised to see that it has 420 milligrams of sodium, between 5 and 8 grams of fat potentially, and maybe 3 to 4 grams of protein. And all of those things are the things that create the flavor in the food. It's this research that's helping Sarah and her team move the needle on flavor. Sarah knows that some parts of the flavor industry aren't subjective at all. They're quantifiable. That Oregon pear and blue cheese ice cream might seem like a beautiful combination of disparate flavors, but it's no coincidence that out of the 18 different flavors Sarah was concocting, that's the one that made it into stores. The little bit of sweetness and acid from the pear is really nice against the bite and the salt of the blue cheese. Not to mention the fat and protein in the ice cream that make it the perfect flavor so many people are looking for. Of course, the way you combine foods, change their properties, and process those ingredients, that requires just as much creativity as Michael's work on the farm. But unlike Michael, Sarah can't always rely on natural ingredients or trial and error to create new flavors. She needs the control and precision of a sterile, state-of-the-art food science operation. Her approach to flavor is different than Michael's. She in a lab, and he dusting the dirt off vegetables and sampling new breeds straight from the earth. But they do share a goal, 
They want to bring new flavors to new customers. In any given week, I probably see 60% of my people who are first-generation folks coming to the U.S. to create a business with their food that they know and love from their country and wanting to live the American dream through their food. Sarah strives to bring a broader set of people into the world of flavor. By including new voices and perspectives in the flavor-making process, Sarah is creating economic opportunities for those who have traditionally been excluded from the industry, like the owners of Tan Tan Cafe and Delhi, a family-run Vietnamese restaurant outside of Portland. They came to me and they said, we have these three sauces that we make and we think people would like to buy them. And we actually created, I believe, one of the first U.S. plum sauces. And now Tan Tan Cafe has been able to expand their products beyond plum sauce. You can order their hoisin sauce, peanut sauce or hot chili sauce right to your door. We might think of Sarah's foods as highly commodified or processed, but her expertise helps first-time entrepreneurs take their business to the next level and change the status quo of the flavor industry. But for Michael, the future of flavor is about a different type of change. It's about overhauling the agricultural system as we know it. And so I think row seven sees itself as impacting the future of flavor by setting up the collaborations between artists and to be able to have a plant breeder that is seeing all the untapped potential of all the diversity that's out there and a chef that can interpret that and know how to get everyone excited about tasting and sampling that, you're going to be supporting a diversity in the field, a diversity on the planet, a diversity in the people that are participating in the food systems. Michael and his co-founders believe that if you can change the flavor of food, you can change so many other things about our food system. You can grow produce in a more sustainable way. You can actually increase the number of healthy food options by getting rid of those inbred crops and restoring some of the original whole nutrients. You can educate people about why they're eating what they're eating. And you can give everyone a chance to taste something they haven't. As Row 7 Seed expands, the future of flavor will be less about making people choose processed flavors over natural flavors and more about a comfortable coexistence. Some of the evolution by some of your more traditional, uh, conventional supermarkets, food retailers, um, you will have more of a focus on local. You might absolutely see it much more marketed as, hey, locally grown signage, or maybe you even have parts of a given uh, area of the store where it's like, hey, here's your, you know, your local bin of whatever type of product it might be. But sometimes a little healthy competition isn't a bad thing. In fact, for the flavor industry, it's what's going to keep people creating flavors we have yet to try. As new players come into the fold and make big changes to both the field and the factory, the future of flavor will continue to shape the way we grow, design, manufacture, move and buy our food. We want more competition. We don't want it to just be us doing this. We need to inspire a lot of other people to be working in this space and not just using flavor as a product, but also using it as a way to drive change. Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. You can listen to previous episodes at morganstanley.com slash ideas. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
I'm Ashley Miltite. See you next time.